0: Good morning. This morning, we want to uh, conclude a two-week mini-series of messages that we have uh, titled Steady. And in this series, we've really wanted to dial in on a a largely dying and in so many ways a forgotten word. And it's this word, the word faithful. The word faithful. Faithful. Um, and, and we took some time last week to just describe and define what we meant by this word. And here's how we described it. When we speak of, of this word, we're talking about consistently carrying out what is required of me And I shared with you, this is the word the Lord ha- has laid heavily on my heart for my life this year. And uh, in many ways, this is the word the Lord has laid on our heart as a church for this year, because I'd found myself growing more and more consumed and concerned with pursuing fame, whatever that might look like, and pursuing fortune, whatever that might look like, and pursuing being flashy, whatever that might look like. And the Lord in his grace just spoke to my heart in this reminder condo listen i am coming back and when i do you will stand before me and i will not care how famous you were i will not care how flashy you were i will not care how fortune filled you were what i will care about is were you faithful in consistently carrying out the things that i called you to be responsible for and as we process this a little bit last week, well, we realized that for many of us, the question of faithfulness will be asked to us in a variety of different ways. It applies uh, to us differently. It touches down in our worlds uh, differently. There are places the Lord, I'm sure, is calling you to be faithful, that he may not be calling me to be uh, faithful. There are ways you're going to answer to him that I won't necessarily answer to him. But this morning, we want to talk about a way. In which we will all have to answer to Jesus Christ. Uh, An area of faithfulness that we all have in common, and Jesus is going to ask each of us the same question. And so, if you have a copy of the scriptures, um, meet me in Luke chapter 19. Um, we're going to look at one of the foundational passages to who we are as a church, a, a passage that I think we honestly look at maybe once every two years or so here at Mission Point. And if you've been around for a while, you are going to, I hope, recognize the words of this passage and some of the ideas that emerge from this passage. And one of the reasons we go back to it is because we believe in this passage is the charge that Jesus Christ is giving us to be faithful with as a church. We believe in this passage there is a task that Jesus is going to ask each of us about when we stand before him. So foundational. In fact, this is the first passage we looked at when this church launched five years ago. So Luke chapter... 19. We are going to look at uh, a somewhat chilling story that Jesus tells starting in verse 12. Now let me just give you a little bit of context. First century, uh, the Jews are not a free nation. Now while they have certain freedoms, uh, they are ultimately under the tyr- tyrannical rule and thumb of the Roman Empire. They are ultimately under the authority of the emperor, the Caesar of rome and he doesn't treat them with any degree of tenderness and so they've lived under oppression for a very long time but they know that there is a promise for their people that one day a messiah would come on the scene one day a rescuer would show up one day a warrior king would come and he would march into the capital city of Jerusalem and he would overthrow those overlords, uh, the Romans, and he would liberate them, set them free, and then establish his forever kingdom of joy and peace and prosperity forever and ever and ever. And so every ounce of them was anticipating and looking forward to this heroic warrior showing up on the scene. Jesus has been around for a number of years. And he's been doing some pretty impressive things, miracles and, and, and all kinds of healings and feeding people. And, and now he's about 18 miles outside of Jerusalem heading into the capital city. The buzz is at an all-time high. The Jews are starting to say to themselves, it is so on. Jesus is about to go in there, go crazy, tear the Roman Empire to shreds and establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And Jesus, realizing that they're mistaken about the timeline, wants to correct their theology. And there's a very significant reason why he wants to do that because... Before I do that, before I tear apart your enemies and before I establish my kingdom of peace, there is still something I have for you to do. So let's not pack up yet. There's still a crucial task to be carried out. And so he tells them this story to get this point across, starting in verse 12. Um, If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, by the way... um, There'll be some guys who will be coming through the aisles in just a moment. Just raise your hand. Let them know you need one. They'll get one in your hands. If you don't own one, feel free to keep it Um, our gift to you. If you do own one, just drop it off at the information center when the service is over. But Luke chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 12. Um. It says, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them each, that is, 10, uh, each one minor. He gave them 10 minors. And he said, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Let's pause uh, for a second and and try and make a little bit of sense of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus seems to be telling a parable. It's a, a truth hidden in a very obvious story. And to do that, he seems to be borrowing a piece uh, of their recent and deeply unfortunate history. Uh, when Jesus was born, uh, there was a guy named Herod who was in, um, in charge. He was on the throne in Judea. Now, he was a puppet for Rome, but he was a powerful guy over his people None. Nevertheless, uh, this Herod guy at some point had gone to war against one of the enemy nations of the empire of Rome and he had defeated them. Um, the Caesar, the emperor in Rome was so thrilled with this that he said to Herod, listen, because you've helped us get rid of one of our enemies, we want to honor you by bestowing on you the title king, hence King Herod in the Christmas story. When Herod died, over half of his empire went to one of his sons, a highly insecure, crazy, trigger happy, power hungry buffoon by the name of Archelaus. Dude was crazy. What made him even crazier? was the fact that while his dad could leave the empire and the throne to him, he couldn't leave the title king to Archelaus? Only the Caesar in that distant place called Rome had the authority to do that. That drove Archelaus crazy, made him feel really small. His ego was really, really bruised. And so to prove that he was on par in power with his dad, he went on a Brutal rampage. At one point, he executed 3,000 Jews for no good reason, and he just heaped their bodies in the temple. This massive affront to the very heart of his people. He tortured thousands of others for no good reason. So, needless to say, the Jews hated Archelaus. As time went on, just reigning terror on the Jewish people wasn't enough for Archulus. He had to get the title king. It mattered so much to him. So what he did was he assembled a group of his family and friends and entourage to go with him on a trip to that place called Rome to see that Caesar about giving him the title king. Now. Archulets being a brilliant... Power-hungry, deeply insecure guy decides I'm not going to take this trip without ensuring that my estate is left in good hands. I don't want any of my stuff to suffer loss while I'm gone. I want to make sure that my enterprise continues to expand. I want to make sure that I continue to make a profit while I'm gone. And so in order to make sure that happens, he calls 10 of his most trusted servants and he does... The culturally unsinkable. He hands his estate and its well being into the hands of 10 uneducated, unsophisticated guys, servants of his, and he tells them in no uncertain terms grow my business while I'm gone. Expand the borders of my empire. And again, to make that possible, he gives each of them one mina, which is about the equivalent of 10,000 or so dollars. And he says, put my money to work, invest my money, work my money, whatever my money, just make me more money. His instructions are very clear to these Servants. So these unimpressive guys, I'm sure, are completely overwhelmed by the thought that, that the ruler has entrusted his estate and his expansion to us. But while they're still probably processing this incredible privilege, Archelaus leaves to head to Rome. Uh, when he gets to Rome, uh, shock of all shocks. His little entourage that he took with him turns on him. Turns out that his family and friends actually agreed to go on this trip to Rome with him so that they could ask the Caesar, please don't make him king. Completely shocked Archelaus. He's like, Mom? She's like, I'm sorry, you're crazy. Just like your dad. This is not happening. On top of that, there was a group of about 80 people who came behind the caravan to make sure that they would sabotage this whole crowning affair as well. On top of that, there were about 8,000 people, Jews, who lived in the area, the region of Rome, who showed up at Caesar's palace and protested. Thumbs down to the crown. We do not want you to give this guy that title. If he has been so tyrannical. In this current state, we can't imagine what it's going to do if you give him the title. Caesar decided too much drama, too much controversy. I'm not going to give this Archilus character the title king. And so he ended up giving him some absolute plastic, useless, no good title and sends him back like assistant to the regional whatever, something. And then he sends him home. Epic fail on the trip to get crowned as king. This guy was furious. It's not right. I mean, my dad is King Herod and I'm just Archie. And on top of that, now I'm humiliated Archie who went and had this epic fail moment of trying to be crowned. As king. So when Jesus starts telling this story, everyone would have known he was talking about Archelaus and his epic crowning fail. People loved that story because they hated this guy. And this is where things take a really strange turn. Jesus pulls the proverbial rug from underneath them turning the story on its head in verse 15 look at what it says the first part of luke 19 verse 15 it said he was made king however and he returned home wait whoa wait what Boo, boo, boo. That's not how our story goes. Jesus, that's not how our history goes. Great teacher, but you're clearly a terrible historian. Everyone knows Archelaus was never made king. Jesus, somebody tell him he's not telling our story right. That's not how it goes. Jesus says, nope. He was made king, however, and by the way, I find this so interesting sidebar side note, uh, that one of the greatest causes for confusion in the minds and the hearts of his listeners is that, uh, see, they're so vain, they probably think this story is about them. That's not how our history goes. That's not how our story goes. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm telling the story. And in my version of the story, he was crowned king anyway. All the delegates, they tried. The haters, they hated. The protesters, they protested. The enemies, they tried all they could to sabotage this crowding. But whatever, he was made king anyway. And then he returned home. People are scratching their heads just like we often do because it's like we're reading this Bible. And that's confusing to us because we thought that the story was about our history. No, our life is just a parable. It's what's apparent to us. But the hidden and more meaningful truth is always about Jesus. And that's no different in this story. Oh, you thought I was talking about Archulus. <laughs> nope. I'm actually talking about me. I'm not talking about your history. I'm predicting my future. This is so powerful. When we start to understand how beautiful this is, when we realize the story is ultimately about Jesus. This story is about me. See, because there was a man of noble origin, me, there was a man of royal blood, me, there was a man who went on a trip to a distant country, me. See, because I am going to be killed, and I am going to be buried, and I will be raised from the dead. And when I rise from the dead, I'm going to go on a trip to that distant country called heaven to see the Caesar of all creation about making me king. I'm talking about me. Now, don't get me wrong. My friends and closest followers, they're going to sell out. Some will betray me. Some will deny me. But guess what? whatever, I will be made king anyway. I'm talking about me. Or Satan and his delegates, or they'll trail the caravan coming alongside to try and ambush or sabotage my crowning. But whatever, I will be made king anyway. I'm talking about me. There'll be millions of people in this world who will resist the idea of me being crowned king over their lives. But whatever, I will be made king. I'm going to go on a trip to that distant country. I'm going to bust up into that palace called heaven. And when my father sees me with the biggest smile on his face, he's going to say, because you were faithful in helping overthrow the empire of sin and darkness, those foes of the kingdom of heaven, it is my great pleasure to crown you king over everything. And at your name, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Whatever, you will be made king anyway. Jesus is talking about him. And here's where he starts to ramp towards the whole point of this story. See, but before I leave to go get my kingly bling and whatnot, I am going to gather... My closest friends and followers. I am going to assemble my servants. Uneducated, unsophisticated, unimpressive bunch. I'm going to gather them to myself and I am going to leave the matter of my kingdom and my enterprise expansion in their hands. I'm going to do the cosmically unthinkable. I don't want my kingdom to suffer loss. I want to continue to make a profit even while I'm gone. And so I am going to gather peasants and nobodies. And I'm going to entrust the expansion project of the kingdom to them. Isn't that what Jesus does after he rises from the dead? Look at Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6, after Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Look at what it says. We'll have this up on the screen, by the way. Um, No need to, to paper cut in haste. It says, then they gathered around him. These are his followers. Again, not the smartest group in the world. Not the most sophisticated. And they asked him, okay, how about now, though? Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You going to overthrow the Romans and you're going to, going to rush us in on chariots and whatnot? Verse seven, he said to them, "It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's none of your concern, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you, you will be my witnesses. You will be my mouthpieces. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said that, he went on a trip to a distant country. He was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. Can you even wrap your mind around that? And yet somehow, we must... That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, his kingdom expansion project on earth has been left in your hands. If you're a Christian, with no exception, there are no exceptions to this. Jesus has called you to his side and he's given you his priceless currency. And called you to invest it, work it, whatever it, just make him a prophet. If you're a Christian, you've received the same currency and the same calling. Each one of us, just like those servants, each of them got the same amount, the same trust, they got the same task. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've received the same currency, you've received the same calling. And the currency is nothing other than the message of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus freely forgives sin and he offers his life and his friendship forever to all Anyone who will accept it. Before Jesus goes on a trip, he calls his followers to him and he says, Put that message to work. Invest that message so that the borders of my kingdom will continue to expand. Look at the second part of verse 15. Luke chapter 19, verse 15. So after he comes back, says, then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. This is so striking. This is something, church, we ought to take to heart. This is something that ought to influence everything we do. This has to become a centerpiece in the way we think, a centerpiece in the way we live. Jesus is saying, "When I come back, I will start with my church." And the first order of business, "What have you done?" With the message of the gospel. That I entrusted to you. How have you invested. The message of free forgiveness. Into the marketplace. Of the world's souls. How is heaven fuller. Because of what you did. With the message of. The gospel. Listen, that is a question every single one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ will have to answer. That ought to orient the way I live, knowing what will be on the test. Ought to affect the way I live radically. And then the gospel audit takes place. Look at verse 16. The first one came in and said, sir, your minor has earned 10 more, 1,000%. That's just Billy Graham, whatever. Verse 17, well done, my good servant, he replied. Because you have been trustworthy or faithful or steady or consistent in a very small matter which that always trips me out, like a small matter seems massive to me every time I'm in a place where I, uh, I'm called to share it. And he says, take charge of 10 cities. I don't understand 10 cities. All I know, again, I want one. Verse 18, the, the second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more, 500%. His master answered, you take charge of five. Cities. So these two guys, they show up and they have killed it. They have begged and borrowed and bargained. They have worked. They have labored. But they've gone crazy figuring out ways to place and invest the message of the gospel. To share it with the lost and the broken. The master is thrilled and he rewards them with unimaginable honor. And responsibility and he speaks over them that divine commendation well done faithful servant and I'm telling you I promise you when you stand before Jesus nothing you have ever done or experienced will matter as much as hearing him say good job and then on top of that bestowing accolades That is what we will long for more than anything else if for any reason we are on the outskirts as we'll see here in a second. Nothing is more significant than Christ's affirmation and his accolade. Whatever else you're living for will pale in comparison to hearing or overhearing potentially Jesus affirming the faithful in The gospel, verse 20, then another servant came and said, sir, here's your minor. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because, you know, you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. This guy is audacious. He shows up for his gospel audit in the presence of the king and he makes a bunch of excuses. And on top of that, he even dares to blame Jesus for why he didn't carry out the explicit orders of sharing the message of the gospel. I mean, I mean, if you're, you're sovereign, so if you're going to save people anyway, you know, I mean, so I. I knew how mad you would be if I'd somehow lost it or messed it up or somehow done it wrong. So good news, um, ironic, good news. Um, I kept it safe and stored away. Here you go. Here's your miner, unscathed. Not messed up. Jesus is not happy. You thought that I would be mad if you you somehow messed it up. But you thought I would be happy if you didn't try at all. Like that's your logic. That's your rationale. You thought I'd be happy that you disregarded my explicit orders, but here's my gospel unscathed. And Jesus calls him, you wicked servant. I can't imagine what that would be like. And then he says, strip him of all his privileges and give them to the guy with ten. That scene is so intense that it says that that people appeal to Jesus, appeal to the king. But that guy already has some. Please don't do this. And Jesus says, nope, strip him of the privileges and give them to the guy who earned more. Um, Can I just tell you that this past year or so... um, I have played it way too safe with sharing the gospel. Way too safe. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in the gospel. I agree with the gospel. I even like the gospel. I even believe there are tens of thousands of people in this county who are going to hell apart from the offer of The gospel. I agree with all the theory about the gospel. And yet, I've so often chosen not to say anything when I've had the opportunity to do so. I've had moments where I'm sitting with someone who I know doesn't know Christ. I even feel the spirit stirring. And this year, I've just resisted. Sharing the gospel. And I, I believe that's part of why the Lord says, be faithful in sharing the gospel. Let alone for me to make the extra effort to make connections with people I know don't know the gospel that I need to actually get a hold of. And I, man, I can't tell you how often it's, it's just because, Because I've chosen my reputation and my likability over my calling. That's just the truth. I don't mind people knowing I'm a Christian. I don't mind people knowing I love Jesus. I don't mind people knowing I'm a pastor or that I work in a church. I don't mind any of that. But I'll tell you what. In the deepest part of my heart, I still want to be that cool and hip and relevant approachable christian who never ruffles any feathers i want to be able to share the gospel in a way that makes people say like oh my goodness thank you come to a party with us you're the best I do. I want to safely be able to share the gospel without any risk that anybody might reject me or keep me unwanted. I mean, I don't want to be the guy who comes and I see people rolling their eyes because here comes the guy with his gospel message again. It brings flashbacks to high school and middle school when I was the unwanted, the outsider. I've worked way too hard to become a little more cool than that to share the gospel and go back to being uncool and unwanted. So I've just said no thanks. I pick my reputation, thank you, Jesus, over the eternal destinies of these folks who might not like me if I share with them. I mean, sin and forgiveness, that could be touchy. That could feel judgmental. And Jesus is reminding me, Kondo, that will not stand in my presence. Be faithful. I've chosen to expand the borders of my kingdom rather than his. I mean, plus, my life is so busy with all kinds of important things and family obligations. And so, if I'm on my way somewhere and somebody stops me and I have to talk to them about heaven and eternity and forever, and then, you know, throws the calendar off, and, you know, just I don't have time. I've got my empire, Jesus. I've got the borders of my enterprise to expand. Thank you very much. In fact, would you help me expand the borders? Would you jabez me a little bit here, Jesus? That's throwback for some of you college students. Just Google jabez. And honestly, I've become so much like this other guy. Full of excuses. Excuses. And I believe the Lord has been graciously re-inviting me to being faithful in sharing the gospel. And, and I, I do, I, I own that. And I, I would love for 2016 to be marked with radical risk in, in sharing the gospel, unlike the safety that I opted for last year how about you which which of these characters most accurately describes the way you are investing the gospel sharing it with people who don't know him which of these most ac- i 'm not asking what describes you five years ago when you're on a roll not asking what described you two summers ago when you're at that camp i'm talking about steady what describes your consistent pattern of carrying out the gospel responsibility Christ has called you to now I'm so concerned that too many of us like this other guy will stand before Jesus on that day with excuses and will hear not the words well done faithful servant but the words wicked safe lazy servant and will be stripped of privilege. And I can't imagine anything being more crushing than to see the face of Jesus and to hear the words come from his mouth. You wicked, lazy, unimaginative, safe servant. How are you doing with sharing the gospel with the lost are you being faithful in offering his free forgiveness to people or have you made excuses and while we're talking about it let's let's just address a couple of the more common excuses that i share i give and i hear and i think this passage addresses Some of the excuses. Because the reality is no excuse will be excusable on that day. None. Uh, But here here are some of them. Uh, The first one is this one. And often asked in a question. But what if I don't know how? In other words, I don't share the gospel because I'm not sure what to say. You know, sharing the gospel is for the gifted and the talented and theologically trained. It's for those extroverts. It's for those people people who like people. None of those things apply to me. So I'm just going to kind of sit this out, wrap the gospel in a cloth, keep it safe and unscathed, and I'll give it back to Jesus on that. Now, don't get me wrong. When somebody shows me exactly how to do it and exactly what to say, then I'll consider joining in on the ranks of the faithful. I mean, when I feel fully trained and comfortable, then I'll consider stepping out and taking that risk. And you know what's crazy? We actually think those are good reasons. We actually believe that's a good reason. Not to share the gospel. I actually believe I will stand before Jesus and say, I would have, but I didn't know how. And he'll say, oh, well well done, good and faithful servant. That's a thought that counts. Uh, The third servant here essentially says, I didn't feel adequate. I was afraid of messing up. And Jesus calls him wicked, meaning the fear of messing up. The feeling of inadequacy, not knowing how, will never stand as an excuse in the presence of the crowned king. Never. Um, you know what I find so interesting? It is in this story, you notice the king gives his money to servants uneducated, unimpressive servants. He doesn't give his money to these business experts. In Jesus' case, he doesn't give the gospel to the theologically trained and the religious elite of that day. He gives it to servants, unsophisticated, unimpressive servants. They didn't know how. They didn't know exactly what the investment strategy would be. You realize the first century apostles were figuring it out as they went. They didn't know how. One of the reasons I know that is every time I see them share the gospel in the New Testament, they do it differently. I'm like, where's the cue card? Where's the rehearsal sheet that you guys are all reading off of? There isn't one. But he gives it to these uneducated servants. And all he wants to know is, did you try Did you invest it? He doesn't care if it was pretty and precise in the way it was invested. He wants to know, did you actually do what I asked you to do? So please, let me say this. Um, The excuse that you don't know how will not fly. Plus, it's so ironic. Because most of you don't know much about a lot of things, but it doesn't stop you from talking about them. But we'll come back to that here (laughs) in... A second, here's the least pastoral counsel I will give today. I don't want to promise about what will happen in the coming weeks. But I hope you hear me loud and clear. If you don't know how to share the gospel, figure it out. Figure it out. Let me say that again. If you don't know how to share the gospel, how to offer hope and forgiveness to the lost and the dying, figure it out. We as a church have not done a good job of equipping and arming you to be able to share the gospel with the world around you. And we want to do a much better job of that this year. Please remind us that we said that. With that said, You will not be able to drag me into your gospel audit. I guarantee. You will not be able to say to Jesus, I would have, but the church had no programs. They had no script. They never told us the specifics of exactly what to say. I mean, I would have if the church had come through. In fact, bring Kondo into this. He's going to share some Jesus. who' will be like, I gave you the same trust I gave him. I gave you the same gospel I gave him. In fact, what resource didn't I give you? You have the best investment counselor in the Holy Spirit. You have the best investment community in the church. Talk to your small group. How do you do it? How do you do it? I don't know how to do it. Can we figure this thing out together? You have the best investment currency in the gospel. And you have the best investment curriculum in this book. We have access to every single resource we need to be able to figure out how did they do it in the Bible. How are other people in the church doing it? Hey, do you guys have any ideas? Do you have any suggestions? But the idea that I don't know how being an excuse is absolutely played out, church. Figure it out. Well, my dad was absentee. And so he never told me exactly how to be a good dad. So (laughs) don't mind if I sit this one out. That, that, that will never fly. Figure it out, Dad. Let's figure it out. Now, the second question that's often asked and, and used as an excuse, what if it doesn't work? What if I try and it fails, it doesn't work? Um, newsflash, it will work. It always does. And you know how I know, look at Romans 1.16. It says, "For well, I am not ashamed of the gospel uh, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First, the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, now, here's how this shows up in this passage. This is so subtle, but so significant. The first two servants come to the king and they both say the same thing. I love it. Your minor has gained. Your minor has earned. Your gospel has awakened. Your forgiveness has enlightened. I love that. These guys understand it wasn't my strategy, it wasn't my skill, it was your minor, it was your gospel. It wasn't my presentation. It wasn't the perfection of my life. It was your gospel, Jesus. That's what earned. The gospel works. All we have to do is invest it. It is the power for salvation. I think we've often not shared the gospel because we feel this undue pressure to somehow be the ones who are compelling and incredibly convincing with the people around us. But the gospel is the power of salvation. All we need to do is share it. Sometimes it is the most clumsy presentations of the gospel that yield the greatest results. Because it's not about you. It's not about your skill. It's about the message itself. The currency is good. Invest it. It will yield a result. And sometimes the result is somebody saying, I want nothing to do with God. That's the gospel working. That's the gospel working. Just because you don't see results immediately doesn't mean it didn't work. Because if you're like my mom, my mom shared the gospel with me, and it took almost a couple of decades for the gospel to yield results, but it was working even for those years. We just saw its results later on. And just because a response isn't favorable doesn't mean it didn't work. That's what we often mean. But what if I share it with somebody like, mm, you're a moron. It didn't work. No, it worked. They could be right. They could be wrong, whatever. But that says nothing about whether or not the gospel worked. Our job is not to generate and produce. It's just to share it. The gospel will work. Your minor has gained. The results and the response are not our concern. Our job is to share it. Uh, Another question, one more that is often asked is, is what if I get stumped? Uh, This is a common one. The reason I don't share the gospel is because I don't want to look like a fool. Somebody asks me one of those tricky questions, and I don't know the answer to the question. Um, A, you probably will get stumped if you share the gospel faithfully. Um, that, that's probably going to happen. And again, um, here's some freedom for your soul. Jesus will never reprimand you for saying I don't know to somebody. Did you know that? That's actually not a crime. You can actually say I don't know. Again, I've seen some of your posts on social media. You don't know anything about politics. But it hasn't stopped you from posting your mind. Um, You know that I have no idea what a tight end in football does? Don't judge me. I've been reading the Bible and stuff. No, but... (laughs) I don't even know if a tight end is on offense or on defense. And please don't be that annoying person who actually comes and tells me after, well, see, here's a diagram of the, I don't care. I actually don't care. (laughs) But I don't know that. Guess what? If Peyton, when Peyton Manning beats Tom Brady this afternoon, I will post about it. I don't even understand all the ins and outs of the football game, but I do know when I love a team and love to see them win and I'll share that much with you. It's never stopped me before. Well, what if I don't understand the coaching strategy and what Omaha means? Is that going to prevent me from sharing that? I. It's never going to stop me from sharing. I don't know the street address of the Haitian consulate in Chicago. That's not going to stop me from telling you about these two adorable girls that we're in the process of adopting from the country of Haiti. It's still true. Even though I can't answer every question, I don't know. But I love them. Want to see a picture? I can't show you because we're in a delicate process. But (laughs) saying I don't know is okay. And if I said I don't know where the Haitian consulate is, would you say, well, (laughs) <laughs> clearly you're not believable. Clearly Peyton Manning didn't win the game. No, it's still true. Even if I don't know a whole bunch of details, church, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, let me ask. It's okay to say, hey, let me try and find out. I don't know. That's perfectly okay. I don't know if it's Pike or bold roast, you know, in a at caramel mocha. I just know it's delicious. You don't have to know. But you do have to share. And the spirit will help. He'll give us words. When when those binds, he says, listen, don't worry what you say. I'll give you the words. But I'll give you the words when you leap, when you jump, when you risk, when you enter in. And then you're like, "Uh, uh, the spirit says, I'll come through in those moments. The third servant disregards the charge because... He feels he's afraid of making a mistake. And I think we often hold out on sharing the gospel because, listen, we don't know. We might make some mistake. And the truth is we may fumble, we will flail, but the gospel will not fail. It will accomplish its work if we just share it, just invest it. Again, a lot of things we don't know about the return of Jesus. We don't know much about the day of reckoning, but this much we know. He will ask each of us, What did you do with the explicit command to share the message of the gospel with the lost? And this church was launched to convince a bunch of us to live our lives like Paul saying, my my life is just completely short-lived. My life is not worth much except that I finish the race of faithfully sharing the message of The gospel with the lost. Jesus will ask us what we did with that. And the good news is regardless of how faithful uh, you've been or not been in sharing the gospel to this point, the fact that you're alive and the fact that you're listening to me means you still have the opportunity to choose to start today towards finishing strong in sharing the gospel. You can choose today that 2016 will be the year you are the most radical, the most risky in in investing the gospel, even if it's messy and even if it's clumsy, trusting that the gospel will accomplish its purpose. And Jesus will be pleased if we just share his message to see the borders of his kingdom expand. The way the story ends in verse 27, Jesus says, but those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's such a sober ending to the story. But church, there are tens of thousands in this county, some in this room, who, unless they hear the message of the gospel and believe it, they will be crushed by Jesus when he returns as a king. He will vanquish his enemies unless they bow the knee to him. And let me say, by the way, to any of you who are in this room who've never bowed your knee to Jesus as king, who've never received the free offer of forgiveness for your sins, today is the day. And my lead to you, is bow by choice. You will bow one way or the other. You will bow. Your only hope is to bow by choice, to say, I choose to bow to you as my king and to receive the forgiveness you offer for my sin. And if you simply ask him for forgiveness and receive it from him, your life will be forever changed. Friendship will begin for ever. Uh, let, me, let me say this. Start close with the gospel. Start close. Th- that's where to start. Do your kids know the gospel? Do your family members know the gospel? Do the people closest to you, the people who on that day who have every reason to look at you and say, you, you mean you knew? And you didn't tell me because you were concerned about what I might think about you for those years. And you knew who are those people who can rightly look at you and say, you knew and you didn't tell me. Start with the people closest to you, the students on your hall, the kids that you sit with at the table. Share the gospel with them and they may laugh at you, but we're here for you. And Jesus will be pleased. The person at your work. Start with the people closest to you. And start simple. Just share your story. Like that's what I do. In fact, I don't want to tell you what to do. You figure it out. But I often share my story. I was pursuing the party life thinking that's what was going to bring me ultimate satisfaction and it just took me to greater places of despair until Jesus showed up and offered me life. And I said yes to him. And my life has forever been changed. And I love that he will do that for you. You can share your story. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. It's, hey, listen, all I know is I was a hot mess and he forgave me. And he's willing to do the same for you. That's it. Well, what about hyper-Calvinism? I don't know. But what I do know is he changed my life and is willing to change yours. May this be the year we are most faithful in sharing the gospel. Lord, thank you for inviting us. Thank you for entrusting us. And we pray that you would now empower us with courage as we take risks. And may you bring a result of thousands of lives forever changed by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.